Hi everybody, and welcome back to Popcorn. Thanks for listening today. I'm glad you're all here. Listeners from around the world tune into the program, a fact that never ceases to amaze me, and my hosting service at Anchor tells me that they're located right here at home in Canada and the United States, as well as places like Singapore, Ireland, the Netherlands, Germany, Greece, Japan, Russia, and the United Kingdom. Today's program is about the idea of story. Why do we tell stories? What do our stories say about us? What stories do we have to tell? What's your story? A few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a civil engineer. He's a man of science, of reason, and of facts, a Christian like myself, but someone who is more inclined to see the world in terms of what is factual and non-factual. He asked me a question I've heard before. He knew that I had been an English lit major and he asked me what the purpose was of studying literature, to his credit, sounding genuinely curious rather than condescending. Personally, I have always felt that my choice to study literature was one of the best I ever made. At a time when I was continually frustrated not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, that was a choice that I had never doubted. I sensed something in the study of literature, though at the time I couldn't have said exactly what it was. It was only years later that it started to become clearer to me. In fact, I chose to major in English because I was fundamentally lazy. I saw it as a way to avoid really difficult work, which is what I imagined the sciences to be. What I told my engineer friend at the time was this. It's important to study history if we want to learn about the things that we have done in the past, the great things people have done that we should attempt to model, and the bad mistakes that we've made so that we don't repeat them. I think history is an amazing field of study. I had a number of friends when I was in high school who went on to study history in university, and I don't know if the fact that I've always had incredibly interesting conversations with those guys is a result of that choice or if it has more to do with who they are as people, but I do know that it's true. So what's the point of studying literature? Well, if I had thought of this example at the time, I would have used it. When we learn about history, we learn facts about the things that have already happened. Many of them are great, amazing, bombastic, stunning, beautiful things. But what history tends mostly to study is what happened and who made it happen. Take for example a guy like Christopher Columbus. When we were kids, we started out learning that Columbus discovered America. It was one of those historical shorthand things because we needed to learn the basics and our teachers assumed that someone else would fill in the blanks later. The fact that Columbus wasn't chiefly a great explorer or by any definition a noble leader or a wise and ingenious entrepreneur and the fact that he was probably more likely a conniving ruthless opportunist, the best thing about whom could be said was that he rediscovered America centuries after the Norse had landed there, to say nothing of the original peoples who had already been there for millennia when he arrived, were things that were left for us to discover on our own. But all of those things are beside the point. The real point is, what did his story look like? What would have happened from day to day on his sea journey? 
What made him decide to go to sea in the first place? Was he a wistful romantic? Was he a poet at heart? Or was he a hard-headed pragmatist who was only after fortune and glory? How did he feel about things? What in his personal makeup made him behave the way he did? What was he like as a person? It's a much more difficult question to qualify. In essence, what it asks is, what was Columbus's story? And in answering the question, a lot of dry facts about when he was born, where he lived, how he grew up, who he married, and his family history simply don't seem to satisfy the question. If someone were to tell me that Columbus was born in Italy in 1451 and that he was the son of a Genoese merchant who sold cheese and later owned a tavern, I'd probably be fine with that. But I might also be tempted to ask questions about what a day in the life of this young man might look like. What kinds of things could have happened to him daily? Who were his friends and how were his relationships with them? Did he joke? Was he known for a certain type of temperament? Did he like animals? What, what kinds of things might he have made happen? What kinds of things might have happened to him unrelated to the sea voyages for which he's famous? What was his story like? A few years ago, a friend suggested that I read Donald Miller's book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. I actually don't remember a lot of details about the book, but I do remember one thing that has stuck with me, and that's his idea of life as story. Miller was editing one of his books so that it could be made into a movie, and this idea was something he discovered along the way. In learning about the elements of story, he began to discover this idea that all of life is a story. But not one that just happens. Life isn't something that just unfolds while you drift through the world. Your life is a story that you are writing and editing as you go along. If you don't like the story your life is telling, he says, tell a better story. You are writing this story. I've thought about that idea a lot over the years. It raises the question... What type of story is your life telling? Who are you? It was a little bit ironic for me to realize that who I am is actually a storyteller. My story was that I was a person who told stories. But more than that, as a storyteller, I'm interested not only in my own story, but all the stories around me as well. Over time, I came to develop the idea that Having your life tell a bad story wasn't just unfortunate or regrettable. It was actually wrong. But uncovering the good story isn't always easy. I could tell you about my career working for the government, but that doesn't make a good story. Nobody really wants to hear that. But I could also tell you about some of the interesting characters I've met along the way because of my work. And I think more people would be willing to listen to that story because people don't want to listen to a bad story. They don't want to listen to a boring story. What people want most out of life is a good story. Years ago, when I was first learning about the ins and outs of the job market and how to conduct myself in job interviews, one of the things I was told to prepare for was an interview asking me to tell them a story. 
An employer might use something like this as an invitation to learn more about a potential employee because stories are powerful tools to learn things about people. In a story, you might learn something about a person in the narrative itself, but you're also likely to learn details about a person from the way they tell a story. How they tell the story could be as revealing as the story itself. Tell a story, but tell a good one. Tell me what happened in Columbus's life to make him into the man he became. If the story isn't interesting, make it interesting. Tell it in a way that's interesting. There don't ever have to be boring stories in the world. It's never the story that's boring. It's the way it's told. I think that's the reason why prospective employers do that. It's not that they want someone working for them who likes to tell stories. It's that they want to know what kind of a person they have. I think storytellers are as critical to a balanced society as scientists and politicians, bureaucrats, construction workers, playwrights, and teachers. Scientists tell us what the world is like, and a good politician tries to make the world a better place for others at the expense of themselves rather than the other way around. But a storyteller tells us things born from imagination and vision. People sometimes ask me why I like to read and watch science fiction, or alternatively, why science fiction is an important genre at all. Now, the first thing I do when I'm asked such a question is to ignore its slightly insulting tone, which is often intentional. People who do not enjoy sci-fi often look down on people who do. They don't realize how critically important it is to read and watch science fiction. One of my favorite sci-fi novels is Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, which was first published in 1953. The story that it tells is itself quite staggering, but beyond that, there's something that stuck with me in the years since I first picked up the book from a shelf in my 8th grade homeroom classroom in the fall of 1986, a line on the dust jacket that says, Science fiction, more than any other literary form, truly expresses the ambiance of the 20th century. It is arguably a bit of a grandiose claim to make about an entire century of literature, but at the same time, the point is reasonable. Science fiction is more important as a genre than most people seem to realize. The writer went on to point out that the authors of popular science fiction write from an awareness and sensitivity that illuminate the human condition. Now, when I explain the importance of science fiction to people, I often use one of my favorite movie franchises, the Terminator franchise, as an example. Some authors like to focus their writing on a simple, broad-based question like, why? Or, what if? Stephen King once said that a lot of the ideas for his fiction start out with a question, wouldn't it be funny if... If that's true, then the question that science fiction seems to ask is, what will happen next? What will happen if we send people to live at the bottom of the ocean or to the dark side of the moon? What if society were based around a robot manufacturing philosophy that took a number of immutable laws carved in stone? What would happen next? And the Terminator franchise does this exact thing. It asks, what would happen what would happen next if we gave up control to the machines? The creators of the franchise seem to have looked at the world around them and said, 
we are automating our world. And that includes military defense systems. What will happen if this is allowed to continue unchecked? What might be the possible ramifications of such a practice? What is going to happen to us if we continue the way we have been going? The entire franchise is a warning about humanity's reliance on technology. The answer to the question is terrifying, but at the same time painfully obvious. If we continue to willingly give over control to our creations, nothing good can ultimately come of it. Now, some people might point out that automating systems so as to free up resources is a relatively positive thing. It assumes resources are wasted when conscious thought is spent on tasks that machines can do as easily or better. For what it's worth, this is a good thing. The question is, who's to say that this is where it would stop? There are other people who might say that giving autonomy to the machines implies the possibility of freeing up more resources than are necessary out of a fear of not optimizing and subsequently wasting resources. Then we end up looking like the humans in Wally, -E. not just fat and useless, but actually redundant. The truth is that we don't know what the future is going to look like. We could speculate about utopia, but there's just as much reason to believe that the world might turn out like James Cameron's nightmarish vision in the Terminator franchise. Unfortunately for us, the Terminator franchise also assumes that such a catastrophic loss of control, while at the same time being fatally detrimental to the human race, is also inevitable. Which is about the bleakest thing you can possibly say about any such trend. Worse still, the world might turn out like Stephen King's short story, Trucks. Trucks is a story which takes a completely negative view of automation. You may have seen the film adaptation of the story, which is better known by the movie title, Maximum Overdrive. In the story, motorized vehicles, not just trucks, but cars, motorcycles, construction vehicles, and others, have become sentient and have begun to take over the world, and they are not friendly. They are, in fact, nasty, brutish, mean, and strong. No explanation is given for their autonomy, at least not in the book, but it is clear that they have only their own self-interests at heart. They are not like humans at all. They don't think like humans, because they don't have the same priorities. King imagines a world in which factories are run night and day by human slaves who are not given a chance to rest or recover, but are simply worked to death and replaced. This dovetails nicely with the horrific vision of the Terminator franchise, but it isn't plausible, frankly. If nothing else, your slave labor force will die out within a generation if they aren't given the motive, means, opportunity, and desire to procreate on a massive scale. If you keep killing your slaves without replacing them, Eventually, you'll run out of slaves. We tell each other these kinds of stories as a way of warning ourselves, as much as a way of imagining all the good things about the future. The stories are a way of showing that we should fight giving up control to the machines any more than is absolutely necessary. Stories fill in the gaps like philosophy, which studies the relationships between other disciplines. Stories bridge the spaces between people. They provide plausible explanations for why people do things and what they might be thinking as they do those things. 
They humanize us. They make us better able to relate to one another. There's an actress named Tina Louise. You might remember her as the actress who played Ginger Grant on Gilligan's Island, which was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Since Dawn Wells, who played Mary Ann on the show, died from COVID-19 in 2020, Tina Louise is the only surviving cast member. She once said, The best movie you'll ever be in is your own life because that's what matters in the end. It's a much more positive outlook than Charlie Brown, who was once told by his best friend Linus Van Pelt that he should picture his life as a novel. Ever the cynic, Charlie Brown told Linus that he had tried that, but it didn't work because there were too many misprints. The idea of storytelling as a framework for understanding reality isn't really a new idea. The most well-known examples of it are found in ancient mythology. The Greeks and Romans had to have a way of explaining extranormal phenomena that they didn't really understand, so they invented a suite of deities to account for them. We all know and accept that, just as we know and accept the basic idea that humanity outgrew those myths as we became more sophisticated. But mythology is a trickier term than we sometimes give it credit for. To refer to something as quote-unquote myth can automatically confer a knee-jerk reaction of rejection, particularly when we begin with the position that a myth is something completely made up, an idea accepted as not fact or not true. The very language itself reinforces this idea. We talk about urban myths, stories that we tell each other about our cultural circumstances that we don't believe to be true but rather find value in them as rhetorical lessons or morality tales. And we talk about something that is a myth as something that is necessarily a lie, as in when we say things like, it's a myth that lightning never strikes in the same place twice. Notwithstanding that scientific fact, there's a broader set of ideas that are encompassed by the concept of myth. Many of the Old Testament Bible stories are rightly referred to as myth. That doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't happen or that the stories don't have tremendous value of their own. But I found that when we start debating about the truth or falsity of whether or not certain biblical stories actually literally happened, we're kind of missing the mark and wasting our time. Take the flood, for example. The story of Noah's Ark is well known in scholarly circles as a textbook example of myth. Is that because it didn't happen? Well, that's unlikely, although... There is a great deal of scientific evidence to suggest that it may not have happened in the way we learned it as children. Practical considerations of the image of a giant floating zoo aside, the fossil record doesn't really bear out the idea that the entire world or even the entire known world at that time was completely underwater. But something certainly happened. There's no arguing that. If nothing else, the fact that the same myth shows up in different cultural narratives strongly suggests it. The biblical story of the flood is dated roughly 600 BC, but it's predated by works such as the Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh from 700 BC and the Akkadian Atrahasis from 18th century BC. Even if all of these accounts are duplications of each other, describing one single event, the idea that the story of the flood is a myth still doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. Myth in this context isn't meant to imply a made-up thing, a story about something that never happened, but rather a story about something that probably did happen, 
and has subsequently been passed from generation to generation, always carrying with it the requisite evolutionary changes in structure that naturally go along with this type of carrying forward of cultural ideas. I haven't read them myself, but I'm sure that the Atrahasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh are quite different in tone, both from each other as well as from the biblical account. It doesn't mean they aren't true. It just means that they're different accounts about the same thing, told by people with differing cultural and historical viewpoints. We do have modern myths, too. Some of them are simply urban legends. But there's another form, well known to many, but sometimes not seen as mythology. When I think of modern mythology, I think of mythological characters like Superman. Now, everybody knows that no one like Superman ever existed. Unlike biblical or other ancient mythology, there's no appreciable debate about the historicity of the real Clark Kent, the real Superman, and that lack of debate is reinforced by a few key elements. In the first place, Superman's place in history is usually deliberately left fuzzy. Like a lot of modern mythological stories, the stories of Superman always seem to happen in the present or the near future. They age as civilization ages, and there's as little emphasis as possible placed on the realism of whatever technology is presented so as not to make that central to the story, rather than the character himself. But that very lack of temporal groundedness is a clear sign that Superman is a myth. Not only are things like historical reference points generally missing from the stories, but their very absence is a strong suggestion that the stories never happened. In the same way, a lack of concrete physical evidence about locations is also a sign that the stories are a myth. We know that Clark Kent is said to have grown up in a place called Smallville, but there is no such place. We know that he moved to Metropolis as an adult, but while Metropolis could reasonably be argued to be a representation of New York, there's no hard proof that it is. The very word metropolis merely means city. Both metropolis and Smallville are as generic as any place name one could ever hope to find in reality. Second, a character like Superman could never credibly exist in reality. All of our research and experience belie the idea that a planet like Krypton could exist, a place where the inhabitants are close enough to us in appearance that we can choose to believe in them if our imaginations wish to do so, but conveniently are at the same time different enough from us that we recognize them as being distinct from us. Even the fact that Earth's yellow sun is what infuses Superman with his power is far too convenient to be believable in reality. Superman, someone with essentially no physical flaws and with abilities which always transcend our own, is a projection of humanity's vision of the ideal human being. Someone who is stronger than us, faster than us. Someone who, in other words, can do things we wish we could do ourselves but can't. To fly, to move faster than the eye can see, to be invulnerable to physical harm. All of these things, combined with Superman's essentially altruistic nature, are the things we wish for ourselves. Life as a normal terrestrial human being can be exceedingly tiresome from day to day. 
We have to be careful we aren't struck by cars or bullets or other flying objects. We have to use machines to travel long distances because we simply don't have the capability to move effortlessly under our own power. We grow tired at the end of the day. If we trip and fall, we bruise our knees and scrape our hands. Our bones become brittle and we become more frail as we age, subjected to such indignities as cognitive breakdown and bodily system failures. We wonder what our lives might be like if none of this were necessary. So we invent a Superman, a person we all strive to emulate. In our imaginations, he's very close to being the apotheosis of creation. Everybody wants to be Superman. Some people think that this type of fantasy escapism is unhealthy, but I don't really think it is. I think it fills an important cultural niche the stories that we tell each other that round out the sharp edges of reality. We know Superman isn't real, but it pleases us to believe that he could be, that there's something out there bigger and better than us. We explore those dark corners at the edges of reality and fill the unknown spaces with stories of what if. I'm not going to explore the idea of paralleling Superman with the character of Jesus, it would be a bit on the nose right now, but if you've been listening to me for a while, you probably know how I feel about that idea. It's not unhealthy to strive to be a better version of ourselves, and it's not unhealthy to have a model or mentor where we look when we need inspiration and guidance. We need our stories. We need them to answer the important questions of what if, but we also need them to be able to explain ourselves to ourselves and to each other. We need our heroes. They exist for a reason, just like our mythological villains. In the same way that our heroes represent everything we wish we could be, our villains represent everything we're glad we're not. I'd go into the psychology of all that, how our dark sides show up and the bad traits we imbue our mythological characters with, but I won't for a couple of reasons. First, I would just be repeating everything I just said about the good qualities of heroes. And second, this whole thing seems to be edging into an area of human psychology about which I am not in any way qualified to comment. I only know what I feel. And what I feel is that people are created with a powerful knowledge of good and evil. Whether we gravitate to one or the other is almost immaterial. What's important is that we recognize them when we see them. I really feel as though I've only just scratched the surface of this idea. There's a lot more to be explored here, but I'll save it for another time. If you are interested in discussing this further, drop me a line at sdrost01 at gmail.com. Check out my blog at stevedrost.wordpress.com or look me up on Twitter under the username CybernetticTiger, Instagram under Popcorn7092, or on Facebook. Until next time.